Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. One of the things that people ask me for all the times that I work with them is, how do I change behavior? And I'm imagining you have the same question. Can I change my behavior or even better, can I change the behavior of my team members? Well, it turns out that changing behavior is really about changing habits and maybe even tiny habits. And there's a methodology to do that. So that's what we're going to talk about today. How do you go about changing your own habits as well as those of people in your team and maybe even your culture? We'll see how that one goes. Um, My guest today is B.J. Fogg. He's the author of Tiny Habits, The Small Changes That Change Everything. He's also the founder of the Behavior Design Lab at Stanford University. And in addition to his research, B.J. teaches industry innovators how human behavior really works. And he created the Tiny Habits Academy to help people around the world. And luckily for him, he lives in Northern California and in Maui. B.J., welcome to the show. Hey, Wanda. Thank you for having me. I'm curious what got you started on this work about changing habits. And I mean, I get that you are a behavioral researcher, but why habits? Why the focus on that? I I think it goes back to my childhood. I grew up in a a culture that was all about uh, being the best person you could be. And there was active, I guess, practice and discussion about habits and behaviors. And on top of that, I grew up in a family where we were supposed to practice the piano and create a habit out of that. So I think I grew up with a natural interest of habits and then soon helping others have healthier habits. And so when I became uh, an academic focused on this area, it was a nice merging of what I grew up with, with an academic scientific approach. So I get the focus on habits from, you know, establishing habits Mm-hmm. But why this this research on tiny habits? What got you going on that? Wow, it was a bit of an accident. Um, I created a model about how human behavior works, and it has three components. Um, behavior happens when you have motivation, ability, and a prompt. And I looked at that model, and the insight I got from looking at it was, if something's really easy to do, it doesn't require much motivation to do it. And I was like, wow, that looks really interesting. Let me try this out with habits, making them really, really small, not tiny. And as it turns out, that is the case. If if you create a new habit and you keep it really, really small, then you don't have to have high levels of motivation to do it. Now, as human beings, human nature, our motivation fluctuates up and down over time. That's just how we are as human beings. And that means if you pick a hard habit, and your motivation sags, you won't be able to do it. But if you make it super, super small, then even if your motivation lags, you can still do that habit. And that's all worked for me, and I practiced this over the course of like a year with my own habits in my own life, and it was like, wow, this is like crazy. This just is so easy. I didn't ever think it could be this easy. So then I started teaching it in 2011, sharing it and teaching it, and it worked for other people too, and called the method Tiny Habits, and 
it just kept going from there. I wasn't, you know, it wasn't like I wrote a grant for research and da, da, da. it just emerged out of my own practice. And then it became a research project okay. and, um, yeah, trying to help other people. Great. So give me an example of what a tiny habit looks like. <laughs> well, there's, um, wow, this morning I've already done quite a few of them. Uh, one of the best ones I like, first thing in the morning when my feet hit the floor, as soon as, you know, in bed, feet hit the floor, I say, it's going to be a great day. So super simple. And I know that sound, may sound like woo-woo or hogwash to some people, but there's so many people that works and it sets you on the right trajectory. Another habit, which I've also done this morning, is uh, after I pee, I do two push-ups. So that's like my tiny habit recipe. Now I can do more than two, but the baseline, all I have to do is two. So I do two push-ups. And throughout my day, there are all these moments where I'm doing these really, really tiny behaviors. And when you bring those together, they can help just transform your perspective and your performance every day. So is it really possible that I can change myself as an individual with just these tiny habits? Is that really doable? Yeah, absolutely. And this is, this is a surprise in my research is when people change in, a, in any way, but even in a small way, when they see they're succeeding and flossing their teeth or eating cauliflower for lunch or any of these tiny changes they make, when they feel successful, what then happens is their identity shifts. And then with that shift in identity, it has huge ripple effects. So, for example, if somebody starts eating cauliflower as a habit in the afternoon, maybe they just get a little piece of cauliflower, as they feel successful in doing that, they think of themselves differently. They start to think of themselves differently. And it's, wow, I'm the kind of person who eats healthy snacks. Now, with that new identity, that then has ripple effects. As other opportunities come up, say at a reception or at a morning brunch, to eat snacks, with that identity of, I'm the kind of person who eats healthy snacks, you're much more likely to eat those healthy snacks. So it comes from, in my research, when, um, the, the pivot, seems to be this shift in identity and that seems to come from the feeling of success on a new habit however tiny it might be so i see myself as somebody who can do this thing and who's having success with mm-hmm. this thing whatever it is it becomes part of my ha- my identity and that's what shifts the behavior mm-hmm. sort of for the longer term okay yes. one of the things i and get ripple from- yeah. yeah, and the ripple effect from that one. One other thing that I get from my coaching clients all the time is they walk away from some effort that we've done or some class that we've done, and they say, right, I know what I need to do now. And then the next question is, how do I keep myself on track? And I find a lot of it is just reminders. So how do you bake yeah. in the reminders to do the small things um, that change the identity? Yeah. There's a variety of ways to do that, um, and I'll say just a couple right now. One is, say you're at a, a, a seminar and you're getting, you're really inspired about, wow, I'm going to bring these practices into my work life, or I'm going to manage in this new way. One thing is to not leave that next step to chance. So if the next step is watching a video or teaching it to your colleagues, 
make sure there's a reminder, or in my model, I call it a prompt, that will remind you to do the next thing. So in the moment of high motivation, so when you're excited about a new concept or a new management technique, don't let that motivation sag, and then you just go back to the old ways. In that moment, design for the next step. That might be putting it on your calendar. It might be emailing your admin and saying, hey, let's do this Monday morning at 10 o'clock. It might be putting, <laughs> one of the things I do, Wanda, is I have these little teeny sticky notes. And if, I re- if it's really, really important and I don't want to uh, miss it, I write it on the sticky note and I put it on the face of my watch. So it's like right there. <laughs> And then at some point, I might transfer it to my calendar or my to-do list. But what I know is without a prompt, no behavior happens. And design for the prompt. So it will remind you to do the next step. That's one approach. The other approach is to, is, it's bigger and harder, but it's redesigning your environment. So it's really, really easy to do the new practices, and it's hard to do the old practices. For example, let's say you want to get your team not to use Facebook anymore to connect with each other at work and instead use uh, a business tool. Well, you can redesign, everyone can redesign their environment by taking Facebook off their work machine, so that's very hard to do, and making the new communication tool really, really easy to do. So that's the second approach is redesign the environment so the good behavior gets really easy to do. So the secret here, if I'm understanding the model, there's actually three components to it. One is keeping my motivation up, which I do by making it really easy to do. Easy to do the new thing and hard to do the old thing. The second thing is making sure I have a prompt um, so that there's an instant reminder that it's hard to forget. And I think there's a third thing you said along the way, which is making sure I've broken it down quickly to that next step so that it's a small thing. Yeah, yeah, let me walk through the the three components, Wanda. So there's motivation, ability, and prompt. In terms of motivation, what you do is you circumvent it. If something's hard to do, you need high levels of motivation. And it is hard to keep our motivation level high. That's just the way we're, that's the human nature. So instead of trying to keep your motivation high, you then go to the ability factor and say, how do we make this really, really easy so it doesn't require motivation or willpower? So you kind of, um, in, in, in my book, Tiny Habits, I talk about it as you, uh, you, you, you outwit the motivation monkey. Instead of dealing with the motivation monkey, you circumvent the motivation monkey and you make it so easy to do. It's like, guess what? I don't really need much motivation to do this. I've made it really easy. So your ability is high. And then at that point, the only thing you need is a prompt or a reminder. Okay. Okay. Um, and, and, and those are how the components work as you're designing to make sure something happens. Yeah. So this it's interesting, this one. So I like that, this notion that motivation is going to fluctuate. It's not always going to mm-hmm. stay really high, inspire the inspiration at that moment in time. And we know that about human behavior. So let's not rely yeah. on motivation. Yeah. Let's make it easy, which is to shift the ability. And then once yeah. I make it easy, a small thing, and I have success with it, and my identity is going to be wrapped around success, I just need to now add a prompt in some way that makes yeah. it a reminder. Um, one of the things that I find when I'm working with people around changing 
a pattern or behavior or doing something differently for that matter, not just a habit, is they often have a lofty goal, like I want to improve my communication, Mm -hmm. but haven't really thought about what improve your communication looks like. So they haven't broken it down to smaller bites that actually you could build an easy way to do it or a prompt around it. They just keep this lofty goal that takes you nowhere. Are you... Are you? Do you see the same thing? Oh, um, almost every day I'm coaching and training people on a problem very similar to this. And I love this question, Wanda. It, it, it's, it's so common. The thing that does not work, and then I'll explain what does work, but what does not work is trying to motivate yourself toward this lofty, vague thing. Like, I'm going to motivate myself to improve my communication. That's often what people think they need to do, but as it turns out, that does not work very well. So the way to make that successful is to have that aspiration clearly in mind. I think you said communicate better or better communication. Yeah. And then you think, wow, if I could do any behavior that would lead to better communication, any specific behavior, what would it be? Write it down. And say, great, what else? And write it down. And so in Tiny Habits, I describe this method called magic wanding. If you had a magic wand and can get yourself to do any behavior that would lead to better communication, mm-hmm. what would you have yourself do? And so you come up with uh, a variety of options, 10 or maybe even 20, and then you go back and pick which specific behavior that you want to design for. Right. So you don't right. just guess at one behavior. You create a range of them, and then you pick the one that's the best match for you. And then you design for that. Right. And then I'm looking for a relatively easy one to do with the prompts and so forth. And then I'm going to have success with it. And once I have success with it, my identity says, oh, I'm a kind of person who can do this better. And then that's the self-fulfilling prophecy from there. Boom. That's the the flow right there. Yeah. And so it's not that hard to do, but people just need guidance. Don't get stuck in the abstraction. Boil that down to something specific and then design for it, just like you described, Wanda. Yeah. Do you find that when you ask people this question, the magic wand question, what's the thing that I would have myself do if I could do anything, that that's enough to help them break down these lofty goals? Or do you think they need more guidance? Well, they do benefit from more guidance. Um, it's, for example, you could say, well, if I could get myself to do anything one time, well, what I get myself to do? Oh, I'd train on this. Oh, I'd get rid of this technology. Oh, I'd make this promise. Oh, I'd hire this person. So those are one-time behaviors. Then you can shift gears and go, wow, if I could magically get myself to do any habit, what would that be? Oh, I would do this for 30 minutes every morning. Every weekend, I would, you know, revise my calendar and so on. So some things are one-time behaviors, some things are habits. And then you could also go to what, what behaviors would I stop doing? So then you develop a set of behaviors there. And then you could even shift. And this is where um, in work teams and when you're uh, working with other people, it becomes important. You say, wow, if I could wave a magic wand and get my manager to do anything, that would help us have better communication. What would I have the manager do or my employee or my colleagues and so on? So you could also explore the possibility of what others or what you might do as a team together. and. It only takes a handful of minutes to explore those possibilities, but what you're doing is you are setting the foundation to succeed, 
And you don't do all of those things that you magic wand. You don't do all the behaviors. But then you have a big range to choose from. Okay. That makes, uh, yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Um, And it certainly fits with my experience of what it is I think people need to understand in order to take action. And I do think what I like about this one is I often say to people, what do you want to have done in three months? But I like your notion of what are you going to have done tomorrow and what little one thing are you going to have done between now and tomorrow? That's small. Seems to me to be much more effective to get people moving in the right direction. Yeah, absolutely. And there's, um, I've mapped out a framework where there's 15 ways behaviors can change, but it's easier and in some ways better to think about. There's three things. One is a one-time behavior. What, what would I just do one time? Uh, and that's like buy something, get trained, make a, a commitment, and so on. Those are one-time behaviors. Then there are habits that you start, and you'll succeed best if you start very tiny. And then there's behaviors you want to stop. And so if you think those of those as three behavior genres, and for any aspiration like communicating better or increasing sales or becoming the top uh, most productive team in the country, it, it's a combination of those things. What do we do one time? What are new habits that we create? And what are things that we stop doing? Yeah. Yeah. We never ask the last question, though. We are all talking about adding stuff, but we never talk about how do we stop stuff. So is there a secret for stopping behaviors? Is it the same methodology? Well, it's the same components, motivation, ability, and prompt. And I'll just fast forward to what often ends up being the, the solution, which is ability. If you can make the behavior really hard to do, then you can stop it. Let's go back to the example of using Facebook. Let's say your team's using Facebook to communicate, and you're like, eh, we don't really want to do this. So if everybody uninstalls Facebook, a one-time behavior, then it makes using Facebook a lot harder to do, and in that way, that's how you design for stopping a behavior. So, yeah, you can remove prompts. You can decrease motivation. But in a lot of cases, it's really about how you know take away the ability, make it hard to do. Okay. All right. So let me give you, let me ask you a question. I'll give you an example I had from um, this week specifically. So somebody says, I want to learn to improve my communication. And by improving my communication, I want to learn to slow down, not talk so fast. It's a very specific behavior. How do I turn that? And that's a stop too, not necessarily a start. How do we make that doable in your methodology? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question, Wanda. But what um, I think what I would do with that is first the person needs to be very clear in her mind. What do I mean by slow down? Does it mean talk slower like this or is it pausing more? And, and I can't define what that is, but that's really the starting point. It's like, okay, let me get really clear on what I mean about this okay. slowing down. Um, and it might just be talking slower. And then in that case, for this kind of thing, changing the motivation probably won't help. Uh, it's not really, it is a tweak in ability, but maybe not what people expect. In this case, you would actually train yourself. You would practice talking slower. And as you do that, to wire in the habits, now we're getting to the next concept, 
to make a habit stick, it's not repetition. It's the emotion you feel as you do the behavior. So as you're practicing talking slowly, what you want to do is recognize and feel, wow, I'm doing a good job. I'm being successful. That feeling is what wires in the new behavior. So in this case, and not all habits get designed this way, but in this case, uh, I would have the person rehearse talking slowly and while she's doing it, or while he's doing it, then recognize the success and feel successful in that moment. That's what rewires the brain and creates the new habit. Ah, so we're back to the identity thing. We're in a way. Yeah. I know you said it's a feeling, yeah. but the feeling is tied to the identity, right? Yes, they they work hand in hand. But as our our brains work, as we're wired is emotions serve various purposes in our lives. One of them is when you feel successful, your brain goes, whoa, what just happened? I want to do that again in the future. So your brain then encodes that sequence of behavior. Oh, I talked slowly, and then I felt good. Wow, I want to do that again. Okay, so I'm, you know, giving, uh, (laughs) your brain really doesn't talk that way, but uh, yeah. That's in essence what happens when you feel successful. Your brain takes note of that and goes, wow, what did I do to have that feeling? I want to do it again. And I think this goes back to really primitive wiring. Let's say, uh, let's say a mountain lion is out hunting for her cubs and then she finds something. She feels successful. Bam, guess what? She's going to go back to that spot again, right? I mean, if, if their brain didn't rewire then, you know, I, I think it's built into us as creatures that when we feel successful achieving something that matters, bam, our brain takes note, and then we're more likely to do that again. So with tiny habits, and this, this strikes people as kind of crazy, but I think it's because it's new and it's breakthrough, and people haven't heard this before. So if you can deliberately create that feeling of success, you're rewiring your brain. So your brain goes, well, I want to do that again. That's fascinating. You'll be happy to know that this individual came up with your methodology all by herself. She must have read your book somewhere along the line because she decided <laughs> what she needed to do was to read yeah. paragraphs from the Financial Times and practice yeah. reading those and hear herself reading them at a slower pace and record it and listen back to it and make sure it didn't sound yeah. ridiculous, that it actually sounded good and that that was going to be a rehearsal. I, uh, uh, little did I really understand at the moment that that was such a good idea, but there you go, a tiny yeah. behavior well, change. And, yeah, and let me emphasize the shift here. I think there would be a lot of people that do that listen to the recording go, oh, man, I'm really messing up. Oh, that was bad. That was bad. That was bad. No, don't do that. Certainly get clear on what you want to do and go, wow, that was good. Wow. In other words, focus on the successes and let yourself feel successful. That's what leads to the change. In other words, you change best by feeling good, not by feeling bad. Great. You know, there's so much we're finding that when we focus on the positive side, when you see the rewards as opposed to the negative consequences, that's when everybody gives additional effort and feels engaged and, as you just said, is a change. So 
BJ, let's come back to the whole methodology. So the notion of we're not going to address okay. motivation, we're going to address ability by making it easy or by mm-hmm. making it hard in the case of stopping something. And then we need mm-hmm. prompts, kind mm-hmm. of steady reminders. And you've talked about different yeah. ways of creating those prompts. Um, mm-hmm. And that are really good, great ideas. All right. And we've talked about the need to take some lofty goal and break it down into a smaller right. thing. And then we've talked about the need to feel successful, to feel positive about experience along the way. Are there other tips in the methodology that we should know? Well, it depends on what um, you've done a really good uh, summary of the main points, but and, but it depends on the behavior. Uh, let's talk about prompts a little bit more. So prompts are the reminders or the calls to action or the cues. There are different ways to do prompts. The most common way is I'm going to write myself a post-it note or I'm going to send myself a text message to remind me and so on. But there's a hack in tiny habits where you use your existing routine, something you already do to remind you. So instead of setting an alarm or putting a post-it note, you have your existing routine be the prompt. And in tiny habit, we call that an anchor. So you're tying the new habit, you're anchoring the new habit to something stable. So going back to my odd example about peeing, that was my prompt or my anchor to do push-ups, uh, for example. So in that case, you, you're designing prompts in a way that will not annoy you. And so you're taking the new habit you want and you're finding what does it come after in my life naturally. So say you want to uh, send a text message to your mom every day. Sure, you could have a post-it note on your phone or you could set an alarm. That's one kind of prompt. But in the tiny habits method, what you would do is like, what routine do I already do that would then prompt me to text my mom? And it might be that as soon as you sit down at your kitchen counter with your coffee, that's when you text your mom. So you use the existing routine of sitting down with the coffee to be the reminder to text your mom. And in that way, you just you begin to seamlessly integrate new habits into your existing routine. And if you find the right spot for it, it the habits can form really quickly and it can feel supernatural. And it can feel supernatural. Okay. Can, I'm sure you know the research that says it takes, what, 21 days to change a habit. Do you find the same thing, that it takes, <laughs> you know, a few days of doing no. this? Or yes. is it faster if I pick a really good anchor? Yeah, well, if you design the habit a certain way, it can happen very, very quickly. In fact, um, I'll give an example that happened in my own life. Um, a friend of mine mentioned to me that writing in purple pen, you convey more emotion. And so in writing thank you notes, in fact, I wrote one yesterday, I thought, well, I'm going to use purple pen because I, I want to convey my gratitude. And as soon as I started doing that, I felt like my handwriting was better and I imagined how she would respond to the note. And I was like, wow. So the purple pen, writing with purple pen for greater emotional impact, because I felt successful doing that, it wired in quickly. It didn't take a long time to go, do I use a blue pen or the black pen or the purple pen? It just became the purple pen right away. Somebody buys a new car, how long does that habit take to wire in to drive the new car? No time at all. They'd start driving. The 21-day idea, anybody who's talking about repetition creates habits, in my view, they're missing the mark. Yes, there are studies that correlate repetition 
with habits, but it, they're not causal. They don't show that repetition causes habits. It correlates with that. So what causes habits is emotions. Uh, so when I write with a purple pen and I feel super successful, like, wow, this thinking that's going to have impact, that emotion will wire in the habit of always reaching for the purple pen <laughs> when I'm writing a thank you note. So the speed of habit formation is a function, not of repetition, but of the intensity of the emotion that you feel when you do the behavior. Okay, that is, I mean, you've been saying this for the last 10 minutes, and it finally has just dawned on me that we do think about habits as repetition, and that we change habits by changing the repetition, and that we do them over and over and over again, and that's where the habits come from, but what you're saying is that's not it, it's the emotion that wires in the habit. Yeah, and, and this is why the ability, and in Tiny Habits, I talk about this skill, the ability to make yourself feel successful in a given moment. So as you do those two push-ups, you can develop this sort of feeling very successful, like good for me, or envisioning your muscles getting bigger, or whatever, or doing a little dance, or or some people will give themselves a high five. Okay, whatever it takes for you to feel that positive emotion, use it to wire in the habit. And it's, it's unusual, right? This is not the typical way of doing habits. Tiny habits is not the conventional wisdom. It's a breakthrough. And this thing about, uh, and we call this technique celebration. So celebrating in the moment of whatever you want to become a new habit, the more intense the emotion, the faster that will become a habit. And some things will become habits almost instantly. I mean, think of, think of the emotion of, uh, let's say, an 11-year-old uh, girl gets a mobile phone for the first time. Her parents hand her a mobile phone. Imagine her emotion when she first uses that, right? How long is it going to take for that girl to create the habit of carrying around her mobile phone? Bam, it's done. Yeah. One and done because it's so strong. Um, and so I... It's frustrating to me that people continue the old inaccurate idea that you just need to keep repeating something to create a habit. There are many things we do in our lives that we repeat over and over that never become true habits. And it's so in tiny habits, I'm hopefully I'm shifting the focus away from repetition toward emotion and especially the feeling of success. So the feeling of success can wire in the habit very quickly which is why when you're helping yourself create new habits, it's really important to allow yourself to feel successful. Or if you're helping teammates or colleagues, help them feel successful. That's how you help them create new habits, new practices, and ultimately perhaps shift the culture by helping people feel successful. Great. BJ, that is a perfect place to take a pause for the moment. So with me today is BJ Fogg, and he's the author of Tiny Habits, The Small Changes That Change Everything. We have been talking about the power of not relying on motivation or repetition to change a habit, instead making it really easy, really small, attaching it to something very simple that's already wired in, feeling good about the success that you have, and having a prompt to make sure you keep doing it. Um, When we come back, I want to talk about teams and cultures and how you can go about actually changing those using this methodology. We'll be right back. 
business? You'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Leading outside of your comfort zone is a delicate balance. You need new skills and new ways of working. To reach the program today, send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. That's wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to the show. With me today is B.J. Fogg. He's the author of Tiny Habits, The Small Changes That Change Everything. And as I said before, he's the founder of the Behavioral Design Lab at Stanford University and has been teaching people around the world to do this methodology called the Tiny Habits Methodology. I have to say, I have just had an epiphany talking about this one because I think like many people, I always assumed habits were a repetition thing. I do it over and over and over again, and then it becomes a habit. But B.J.'s concept is no, that a habit is form because of the emotion that we feel good in doing it and the more intense the emotion the better we feel at the moment and the more likely we're going to do it and so in addition to that if I make it a small behavior a tiny little thing and I attach it to something I'm already doing that's already anchored and I have or I have a prompt that is a reminder that that's the way that we're going to get it in and then we want to celebrate we want to feel good about what we've done because it's the emotion as BJ says that wires in the habit and they can wire it in really quickly. So none of this waiting for 21 days anymore. We can do it quickly. So BJ, I want to shift just at the end there, you were talking about team and you know, everybody wants to know how do I change my team, usually a team member, but let's say a team as a whole, how do I get, I move from changing me to changing the team? Yeah. Well, I, I've run a formal study that's exactly along these lines, and it was helping nurses reduce stress. The hospital, this is a major research hospital, and they're very concerned about burnout, especially among the nurses. And so they brought me in to teach them the tiny habits method and help them reduce their stress. Uh, and we did it together. So I'm a huge fan of changing together. In fact, uh, a whole year of my lab's research at Stanford was about changing together. And in this case with the nurses, that was really important. And so they were able to take the tiny habits method, implement these new habits, 
celebrate them. And together they change together in statistically meaningful ways. Um, and so that's a great way to go. Now, if one nurse alone had tried to change his or her own behavior, yeah, they might have been able to do it. But the context, the culture, Wanda, I was so, <laughs> I was so surprised as I got to know the nurses uh, in this group. They had this culture, well, they'd work 12-hour shifts, and part of their culture was, oh, we can't go to the bathroom. We can't use the toilet during these 12 hours because we have so many patients to take care of. So we're not going to use the bathroom. Oh, that means we're not going to drink water because if we drink water, we have to go to the bathroom. So that was embedded in their culture. And in doing tiny habits, not only that behavior shifted, but the whole sense of optimism and having a more positive view of their job went up. Wow. And presumably, therefore, stress goes down and retention goes up and engagement goes up and probably patient satisfaction and a dozen other things that we'd like to do. All right. So it's not that as the leader, I sit there and say, right, you lot all have it wrong and I'm now going to change the habits. That would imply that as the leader, I'm changing habits with my team. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, well, there's, there's, there's two ways. And in Tiny Habits, I talk about being the ring leader. It's when, it, you know, like, hey, I, we're going to change together and I'll be in charge. The other way, Wanda, is the ninja. Okay. You sneak it in. And you can do it as the ring leader or the ninja. And I walk people step by step in the in uh, designing for these new habits. Here's how you do it as the ringleader. Here's how you do it as the ninja. Because sometimes you can't, you're not in charge, but you do know that your group needs to reduce their stress or you need to communicate better or you need to be more productive. And there are ways to help your team change together uh, in both, using both paths. Okay. All right. So, um, you know, tell me about this ninja method. Give me an example of how that works. Well, so in the ninja method, so let's say that you want your, um, let's say you're on the project team. Let's, let's stick with the stress at work. That's a huge problem. Um, and the, the manager, let, let's say, said, wow, our, our workforce really stressed. We're going to get everybody to meditate every day. And you go, oh, my gosh. He's jumping to a conclusion that meditation is the key. Now, for some people, meditation is probably good, but it's not good for everybody. So you, you as a ninja might go, wow, meditation, that could work for some people. But what if we also allowed people to put a, a potted plant in their cubicle if they wanted to, if that helped them? Oh, that's fine. Oh, and what if we also offer them a walking path outside during lunch? You know, that might help other people. So what you've done as the ninja is uh, you've stopped the mistake of making everybody do one behavior that the leader just guessed at. And you're starting to, you're kind of magic wanding. You're giving them other options. And so um, in behavior design, the key is to help people do what they already want to do. And if they don't already want to meditate to reduce stress, then you need to match them with something else. So as a ninja, you can suggest other options. Like, what about this and what about that? Um, or you might even say, hey, why don't we just do a quick survey of the team and ask them what behavior would they do to help reduce stress? And then the manager might go, oh, okay. In other words, you've saved, uh, you, <laughs> you saved the team from making a mistake of trying to get everybody to meditate. 
And instead, you're opening the possibilities of the different behaviors that will lead to reducing stress. So this is not unlike the notion of the magic wand when I'm trying to change my own behavior and I'm thinking of what are all the things that I could do um, if I had a magic wand, except this time I'm just allowing the team to create that magic wand. Right, exactly. And so even though you're not the manager, you're not in charge, you're essentially magic wanding. And if it's a team meeting, you might go, wow, what else could we do to reduce our stress? And when somebody suggests something like, oh, bring our dogs to work, you say, great, what else? Wow, we would uh, have a a Friday, you know, (laughs) beer batch. (laughs) You say, great, what else? So you're essentially magic wanding on the sly. You don't pull out a magic wand. You don't pronounce that you're doing tiny habits, but you're taking them through the method. Yes. Okay. All right, so it's the same methodology. I'm just doing it in a ninja-like way, in a covert way. I'm not aiming at that, but I'm still doing it. What does it look like then when I'm the ringleader? You would just say, hey, here's how it works. Our aspiration is this. We need to reduce stress. Let's everybody come up with a whole bunch of different ways we might do that. Let's come up with 40 ways in the next 10 minutes. And Wanda, that's absolutely doable. There's a, a worksheet in Tiny Habits that people can use, and they, they fill in the worksheet. And within that short time, you could come up, easily come up with 40 different behaviors. And then you choose among them. Uh, so once you have the 40, what you want to do, and this, this goes back to what we talked So I'm going to give a little more detail here. You want people to match themselves with a new behavior that will be effective. In this case, it will actually reduce stress a new behavior they want to do, and a new behavior they can do. So those are the three criteria. Effectiveness, want to do, that's the motivation component. If they don't want to uh, meditate, don't make them meditate. They don't want to like put a plant in their cubicle, that's not for them. But they may want to walk around you know, in the garden at lunch. And then it needs to be a behavior they can do. Like if somebody really wants to bring their dog to work when <laughs> there's a company policy, guess what, that's not gonna be a good match. They can't do that. So once you have a big set of behaviors, and as a leader, you can uh, create that quite quickly with your team, then have people match themselves. And and the behavior you pick uh, in Tiny Habits, uh, I call that the golden behavior. The golden behavior will be effective. It's something you want to do, and it's something you can do. And the golden behavior or the set of golden behaviors is different for different people. Okay. So I get this notion that we have a goal to reduce stress or improve communication or work out every so many days a week or eat healthy or whatever else it is that we want to do as a habit as a team, check in with each other. And what we're going to do is create a whole list of ways of behaviors that we could do that would result in that goal, that end goal. And then we're going to kind of eliminate some of those that we actually can't do that are against company policy or aren't realistic or whatever. And then I let each individual figure out their best match against the set that's remaining so that I'm choosing an effective behavior that somebody wants to do and that they can do. Yes. And yes, ideally, that's how it works. And so back to the uh, the, the study uh, that I ran with the nurses. So each nurse would come up with his or her own, here's what I'm going to do to reduce my stress. 
uh, I'm going to smile at each patient when I walk in and look at their name and say their name. And another nurse would, as she's handing off after her shift, she would compliment the next person coming in. And so they come up with a variety of things. And then they would share among, and then they would share among themselves what was working. So it was, they were experimenting on their own. I mean, they were learning the method together, but they were each taking different new habits they wanted. But as it started working and as they found one to be super effective, they would share with each other. And that developed this culture of change, of changing together, where they were sharing. Here's what tiny habit, you know, after I park in the parking lot at the hospital, I take three calming breaths with one of the tiny habit uh, recipes that one of the nurses created. And she shared that with others. So others started practicing that. And... And they also celebrated each other. So they were all given this method of how to bring new habits into their life. They, I want to say experimented, but it wasn't a trick. They, they, they played around. They, they, they explored of what mm-hmm. worked. And that's really the best way to think about changing your habits in your life is exploring. You won't always get it right. Uh, and that's okay. That's normal. And then as things started working, they kept doing it, but they also shared it with their colleagues and their colleagues would try it. And then they would help each other change. And then it became this, um, what shall I say, this perspective of we're the kind of team that can change. We're the kind of team that manages our stress. We're the kind of team that helps each other. So even through these tiniest of things, as people did this and feel felt successful, their identity shifted as individuals, but also as a team. Great. So is this what it is that changes the culture, that we're doing this together and we're having success together and we feel like the culture as a result is shifting? Yes. I think there are other ways to change culture. I mean, you could certainly do it through through punitive means, through punishing people and threatening people and so on, but that's not what Tiny Habits is about. So I think there are a variety of ways to change culture. What Tiny Habits is about is the fastest, easiest way to change and you're feeling good. And that's something I can get behind 100% for stressed out nurses or a team that Uh, working on a cancer cure or a team that's selling a useful product. I mean, help people change in positive ways. And don't, the the negative techniques can get people, can get what's called compliance, which is they'll do it as long as they think they're going to be punished and they'll keep doing it. But it doesn't change them inside. Uh, the, The negative things don't create the habits in the same positive way. Right. Right. Negatives. I always say negatives get people to conform to the letter of the law, but not one ounce beyond yeah. that. So and in the exactly. moment the threat is gone, you're right. That doesn't work any any better. So let, I want to shift this one just for a minute and talk about the role of feedback in this process. Um, okay. So you've talked about celebration and seeing the positive and feeling good about it. Is there a role is there a role for feedback in general? Yes, absolutely. As in Tiny Habits, I map out a model, and it's a really simple model. And I almost didn't put it in, Wanda, because it's so powerful. And my editor said, no, let's put it in. It's, it's really important. And here's how it works. I mean, you want to give 
feedback in a way that helps people feel successful so they wire in the new habits. I hope that's clear. Now, if you can give a colleague or someone you're managing feedback very quickly, you can help them wire in a habit. Okay, what's the most powerful feedback you can give someone? Well, it has two characteristics. And in tiny habits, it's like a Venn diagram. It's two circles overlapping. One of the circles is it's in an area that that person cares about. So if that person cares about, let's say, being a good team member, a good team player, and then the second circle is uh, something that they're uncertain about. And the overlapping region is um, a, a, an area where they care about, but they're uncertain. And so let's say that it's, uh, they want to be a good team player. And let's say they just joined the company. And, and so any feedback you give them about being a good team player will be super impactful. If you give them negative feedback, you can really hurt and crush them. If you say, wow, you did a good job of summarizing the meeting for people who missed it, or any positive feedback you give in that overlapping region is going to be supercharged and will have power to wire in that new habit. So, um, again, the, the, two, the two circles. One is uh, they care about that domain, and the second one is they are uncertain about how they're doing. And so if you give them feedback, in that domain that they care about, but they're uncertain, it will be super powerful. And you can use it for good, but you can also use it to really hurt somebody. So that's why I was hesitant to put it in the book. Uh, yeah. But I'm, you know, I'm in there, I mean, my work's all about helping people be happier and healthier. And I'm like, use this for good. Do not use this to manipulate people. Do not use this to harm people. Uh, use this for good purposes. So does that mean, so if it's an area that somebody's really passionate about and it's a place mm-hmm. where they're not certain about how they're doing, they're feeling, I might use the word a little bit insecure mm-hmm. about their standing on it or about their capability in yeah. it, in, is it better then to give the positive side what you're doing well and ignore the what you've gotten wrong or do I need to do some of both? Well, from a tiny, from a habits perspective, uh, the positive feedback given quickly will wire in the habit. And so from my perspective, it's really, you know, I see everything in terms of behavior and habits, and you want people to have these positive habits, then focus on the positive and point out what they did well and do it, and point it out quickly at the moment if you can. Um, and I believe, this, isn't, this part's not based on my research, but in my, the way I do it and the way I think about it is just be authentic and sincere, VJ. You know, then that for me works just like I, I was uh, one of my graduate students last night. I was, I was coaching him, his career isn't unfolding as he expected. And all I had to do was speak the truth to him and point out what he was doing well and encourage him and not point out when he was messing up because he already was frustrated and already was vulnerable. And there's no reason for me to go there. Instead, point out the positive and affirm that it, affirm the ways he's succeeding. Now, there's probably approaches where you do a balance or there's probably people who have succeeded by being very critical. Um, but, you know, as a manager or as a colleague at work, you have choices, I think. And I would advocate choose the positive way to help people. You uplift their life. In the case of the nurses, what happened? Wanda, what we also found in the research was by changing in this positive way, it affected their home life. So 
So not only were wow. they happier and more productive at work and more connected, they were better at home. They were more connected and happier, and they changed habits at home as well. And so that, that to me is like, and you don't get that by beating somebody up or criticizing them. Right. This resonates with a piece of research that I heard from somebody on the show a few weeks, well, a few months ago, actually, where they said, if you're already an expert in something, then the critical pointing out the one small change that would make you stronger is actually really accepted. But it's when I'm not particularly skilled at something that is the positive, what am I doing well, that's going to really help. And that's what you have here because you say it's an area I really care about, but it's an area I'm not very certain about. I'm not feeling very strong and very expertise-like in that area. And it's in those moments that we want to affirm as opposed to criticize. Yeah, exactly. Right on it. And I love that research and and these overlapping circles map to that. And so if it's an area that I'm certain about, then let's say, like, I love giving talks. I love teaching. I love keynoting. And I feel like I'm good at it. I've practiced for years and years. So it's not that I'm uncertain about my performance. and And so if somebody comes up to me after a talk and critiques me, I dig that. I want that. Okay? But if it were my first keynote talk and somebody came up and critiqued me, Damn, that would just be shattering. Yeah. 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 Okay, BG, I'm going to be completely unfair to you. I want to know about this <laughs> concept, and I'm going to tell you I have two minutes to do it. Okay. I'll, I'll repeat the question, please. Swarm. What's this oh, the swarm, swarm concept, and how does that work? Okay. So... The, the, the swarm of behaviors maps to what we've talked about previously. Yeah. Now we're going to give it a name. As you have that aspiration, like reduce stress among the nurses or communicate better, any aspiration, as you come up with that range of behaviors, uh, <laughs> one of my students called that the swarm of behaviors. So, yes, you come up with 20 or 40 of them, but you know, we started talking about it as the swarm of behaviors or the swarm of bees. So for any given aspiration or outcome, you can come up with a whole bunch of different behaviors that will get you there. You know, the means that will get you to the end. You come up with a whole bunch of those, and then there's a model called the swarm of bees, and you map it out like a bunch of bees flying around this cloud, and inside the cloud is your aspiration, like reduce stress or be more productive or, you know, communicate better. And it's kind of fun and funny, and that's kind of my work. You know, I, I, I'm a bit of a goofball, <laughs> and I like being playful and saying, yes, yeah, the swarm of bees, and let's magic wand, and let's, you know, just, uh, you know, I, I, it, I think it fits to the overall message of tiny habits is, yes, you can change, and you change best by feeling good, and that also includes being playful. Don't be uptight. Um, it's like if you're this, if you're rigid and uptight, you can't be flexible and you can't change very well. And so a big part of what I advocate is be playful, uh, be exploratory. Don't expect yourself to be perfect because you won't be. And when it's working, keep going. If it's not working, don't blame yourself. Don't beat yourself up. Just step back and try some other things. Um, Fabulous. And try, it's, it's like decorating a room. Yeah. 
PJ, I love it. It's a it's a fascinating model. This notion that I don't try to emphasize motivation. I try to emphasize small things that I can actually do that I have the ability to do, and then I create mm-hmm. all sorts of things around me that are going to make this effective. And we start with very small behaviors, yeah. a whole range of them, um, and we use those yeah. then to feel good. And it's in the feeling good that we're actually going to change the habits. My guest today is BJ Fogg, and the book, if you want to know more, is Tiny Habits, The Small Changes That Change Everything. BJ, thanks for being a guest. Wanda, thank you so much. And join us next week for more wisdom on getting out of your comfort zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.